Lately, as I have uh, just been out and about, I've been noticing trees. I'm sure that you've seen them as well. Now that the weather's changing and we're beginning to move from winter into spring, I'm seeing lots of little buds and blossoms on branches. There's a transition that's starting to take place. It's not quite as traumatic as the kind of transition that Mike was talking about last week in his sermon, but it's a kind of transition that is quite dramatic in its own right. There's a very wise man that once observed in Ecclesiastes 3 that there is a time for everything, a season for every activity under heaven. And then he went on to, uh, to list some examples of what he meant by that. He was making observations. He was not writing a prescription of how things should be. He was not making pronouncements about how God wants or ordains things to be. He was simply observing the way that he sees that life is. He sees times and seasons. He sees transition and change. He sees expected and unexpected kind of things. Some of them are wholesome and appropriate and beautiful and reflect the heart of a creator for his creation. And others that are tragic and difficult, as we've experienced this last week, for which there is no time or season that is appropriate. Reflecting a kind of brokenness in our world and an awareness that, as Jesus once put it, an enemy has done this. Things that are not what God designed. And some of what he observes have elements of both, or perhaps at least have the potential for bringing out elements of both within us. But to get back to the trees, one of the things I discovered this last winter during a key transitional moment happened on one of those unusual days when it snowed up here in uh, Calamesa, Yukaipa. I was out in the backyard looking at this pepper tree that grows on our bank, tree was all laden down with snow. And as I stood there looking at the tree, it struck me that something about the configuration was wrong. There's a large branch that extended off to one side of the tree that was not just drooping and sagging. The angle was too sharp for that. And of course, what I had discovered as I went closer to the tree and got a closer look was that this huge branch had splintered and broken and fallen under the weight of the snow. Well, this is not the first time this sort of thing had happened. Just a couple of winters before, under a similarly unusual bet of weather and a much heavier snowfall, I had gone out in our backyard to find that one of our pine trees, one that actually stood next to the pepper tree, was lying there on its side with its roots up in the air. The unexpected weight of the snow had been too much for the tree. Now, before the snow came, the tree was actually looking pretty good. It seemed to be flourishing. Things were fine. But when the season changed in unexpected ways, its root system simply was not sufficient to keep it anchored, and it collapsed under the weight of the snow. Snow happens. Moments of transition are sometimes like that. And now that I have said this, for some of us, it's already started to happen. 
You might be feeling the first hints of it in the pit of your stomach, or maybe in the slight sensation of the muscles tightening around your eyes, or whatever form it shows up for you. But for some of us, when we use illustrations like this, they have a way of reaching down deep inside of us somewhere, and be it ever so subtle, stirring up there a sense of anxiety and uneasiness and stress. I mean, what if I'm like that tree? What about my roots? What if I am not prepared enough or strong enough or informed enough or I don't get all the right information or the secret code to the end of time? What if when the snow begins to fall and pile up, or as it's sometimes expressed in Adventist language, when the time of the end comes, will I be able to stand? And however we describe what it is that we think we need, we sometimes worry so much about whether we are or have enough that we can find ourselves becoming anxious and uncertain and afraid. Our anxiety not only clouding our judgment and skewing our perceptions about how we see things, but in some cases leading us to act in ways that are neither very helpful or appropriate and oftentimes certainly not necessary. This particularly happens when things around us change in ways that we were not expecting. Well, for a couple of weeks now, we've been talking about this whole idea of transition. Pastor Saul began our series last uh, two weeks ago, actually, by reflecting on the experience of Moses and the children of Israel at one of their key transitional moments, reminding us that when change comes, for better or for worse, however isolating it feels, or however much we may want to isolate ourselves when it happens, Change is something that we all experience together because, whether we like it or not, we are all connected. We're family. Last week, Mike Benny reminded us, as we looked at a particularly difficult time in the history of the Christian church in Acts chapter 8, that uh, transition, like that part of natural childbirth that it gets its name from, as painful and intense and overwhelming as it can be, is not something that lasts forever. And in fact, sometimes out of those moments come this incredible miracle of new life that we wouldn't trade for anything. This morning, I'd like to invite you to look with me at yet another place in the scriptures where we can get a unique glimpse not only of what it's like to be in the midst of these transitional, transforming moments, but maybe also how God comes alongside of us and actually walks us through them and perhaps in the process gleans some insights about how we can navigate these sometimes more stormy moments in our lives and maybe avoid the experience of finding ourselves lying on our sides with our roots up in the air. Or if we don't avoid those moments, maybe what we can do if we do find ourselves there. It's in 1 Kings chapter 17 that I'd like to invite you to turn with me this morning as we begin to look at a story that opens there, that unfolds. And it's there in that chapter in 1 Kings 17 that we're first introduced to the prophet Elijah. It's also here in 1 Kings 17 that we discover that Ahab is king of Israel at the time. Ahab had been keeping himself busy, we learn, by, among other things, marrying Jezebel, and building an altar for Baal in one of the Baal temples in Samaria. Gives you some kind of clue as to the state of religious life in Israel at the time. Not too promising. And it may be at least partially because one of the titles that Baal had in those days was Lord of the Rain Clouds, 
that we find God sending Elijah to Ahab with the message that despite all of his efforts to cozy up to Baal and try to get things to work for him, there was going to be no rain, not until God decided that it was time for it to rain again. Well, as we read on in these chapters, we discover that there were many difficult months of drought that ensued. Months that became years. And during this time, as Elijah becomes increasingly less and less popular with Ahab, with the help of some ravens and uh, this generous widow at Zarephah, a widow whose son Elijah restores back to life, God continues to sustain him. Well, this goes on for a long time. It's finally three years later, during which time Ahab had been busily looking for Elijah and had not been able to find him. And Jezebel has been keeping herself busy by killing off prophets of the Lord wherever she can find them. That God decides that there's enough of this. It's gone on long enough. We're going to bring this to an end. And so he enlists the help of a somewhat reluctant Obadiah, and a meeting is set up between Elijah and Ahab. Elijah and Ahab exchange some sharp words with each other. But finally, in the end, Elijah tells Ahab to go ahead and gather up his 450 prophets of Baal and his 400 prophets of Asherah and meet him on Mount Carmel. And Ahaz agrees. Well, we know what happened. Two altars are set up, one to Baal, one to God. The prophets of Baal go first. They prepare the sacrifice and they enter into their rather elaborate and intense rituals hoping that somehow they can get Baal's attention and persuade him that he should send fire down and consume the sacrifice. Well, after a considerable amount of time has passed and it becomes apparent that this is not working, Elijah finally gets his turn. Elijah prepares the sacrifice, douses it with water to make sure that no one has any questions about what's about to happen. And he simply prays to God. God responds by sending fire, which not only consumes the sacrifice and the altar and the wood and the stones and a few other things as well, but clearly makes the point that the God of Israel is the true God. Prophets of Baal are eliminated, as the story tells us, and God sends rain on the land once again. And if in the midst of all of this, you are Elijah the prophet, you know, I don't know how it gets much better than this. I and mean, this is kind of the height of your career at this point. And you might think that this would be a great place for the story to stop. But it doesn't. It's actually at this point in the story that everything begins to unravel for Elijah. As word of what has happened reaches Jezebel, she becomes infuriated. I mean, she's now down about 850 prophets, which probably didn't make her day. And so she sends word through one of her servants to Elijah to tell him that essentially he is a dead man. And so Elijah, who has been, who God has been looking out for now for at least three years, and certainly over the last several months, Elijah, who had watched God restore life to a dead boy while he stayed with the widow, Elijah, who had just stood on Mount Carmel and watched the fire fall and the rain fall, whose hair was probably still singed by the fire, or the ground was still moist from the rain, Well, 1 Kings 19, beginning with verse 3, describes it like this. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Verse 4, he came to a broom bush, 
sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. So how is it then that an impressive tree during an unexpected moment of transition like this suddenly finds itself lying on its side with its roots up in the air? What happened here? Snow apparently happens. Now, while it's always a little bit risky to try to climb into the head of a person who lived almost 3,000 years ago and pretend to know anything at all about the psychology of what was going on in Elijah's head, I think it is at least interesting to notice that the pattern of what he experiences seems to be very much like what we see other people experiencing under similar kinds of circumstances today. When we allow our lives to become defined primarily by what is going on outside of us and around us, rather than what is going on inside of us, the people who we really are at the core, we become very vulnerable when circumstances change. We've all seen stories of what happens to people, sometimes at least, when they win the lottery, you know, and how their lives become all unraveled as their identity shifts from who they were before that time to what has now happened to them. Some of the stories are pretty tragic. But however you want to unpack the psychology of what's going on here for Elijah, it is very clear in the story that in a very short period of time, Elijah has gone from a place of confidence and position of triumph to a place of anxiety and fear and deep, deep depression. But you know, perhaps even more significant than what we see Elijah doing right here at this point, which we'll get back to in just a second, is what we see God doing at this stage of the game. We notice that however much Elijah runs, when he finally collapses, exhausted, lays down under the broom tree, it is God who wakes him up and provides for him what he is too weary and no longer inclined to even try to provide for himself. Verse 5, an angel of the Lord touched him and said, get up and eat. And there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat because the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. Forty days. Some things just don't get better right away. And God gets that. God hangs in there with him. Eventually, Elijah finds his way to the same mountain on which Moses had caught a glimpse of God so many years before. And in verse 9, we read that the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And then, of course, Elijah responds. Not with any reference to the way that God had been with him over the last 40 days, not to mention the last several years, but instead by focusing on how hard Elijah had worked how ungrateful and how unresponsive people were, 
how alone he now feels and how he is now the last of the faithful ones left in Israel. Ever had days where you felt like that? Oh, and of course, that Jezebel is trying to kill him, which actually was nothing particularly new. She'd been trying to do that for almost three years now. But now it was different. Something had changed. Because however it happened, Elijah had lost his focus. And instead of trusting the God who had been faithfully providing for him and still was providing for him, a God he could not see, he began to take his cues from what was happening around him, the things that he could see. And you know, when for whatever reason we find ourselves slipping into that same mode, no matter how wonderful it looks and how wonderful we look when things are going well, If that is where our primary focus is, when the tough times hit, and sometimes they hit pretty hard, we can find ourselves in a very similar place. And we can lose track both of where and who God is in the midst of all of it. And so, because Elijah had lost track of both on the same mountain where God had passed before Moses so many years before, and revealed to him what his character really was like as Moses hid there in the cleft of the rock. God invites Elijah to step outside for a moment. The Lord said to him, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. A thin silence, I understand, is the most literal way to translate that. You know, not entirely unlike the way Moses, after all of the thunder and smoke on the mountain, in this same spot, have listened as God proclaimed who he really was, which, by the way, was not all about smoke and thunder on the mountain. God reminds Elijah that it is not primarily in the big visible stuff that swirls all around us that we are to look for God's presence or from which we should be taking our cues. But in that steady, quiet voice that often speaks in much less dramatic ways, a voice that we can sometimes miss amidst all the other things that are happening, the voice that reminds us of who God is and who we really are as well, that really has very little to do with all that stuff that's taking place, and which, in spite of all of our running and in the midst of all that is happening, we discover still continues to speak to us, reminding us that whatever may be happening around us or to us, that is not what defines us. It's a voice that reminds us. It's not in the big stuff we can see, but in the little stuff we can't see that our lives are sustained. Well, verse 13 says, when Elijah heard it, he put his cloak over his face and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? 
And you know, once we begin to hear that inner voice again, realizing that we don't have to be driven by anxiety and fear, and that we're not left at the mercy of what's happening either to us or around us, that is indeed an appropriate question for God to raise. So what are you doing here, Elijah? Or to borrow some language from Rob Bell, he puts it more like this. Elijah, you don't have to live like this. You don't have to live like this. Well, interestingly enough, when Elijah responds to this question the second time, he uses the same words that he did when he responded the first time, which some commentators have suggested as evidence that obviously Elijah learned nothing from everything that had happened. But I don't think so. Other commentators point out, and I tend to agree with them, that there are times when we may say exactly the same words, but because they're now coming from an entirely different place in our lives, they mean something entirely different. His situation has not changed. He's still feeling many of the same things he was feeling before. His life is still quite challenging. But having had the opportunity to pause and to reflect and to listen, those are not the things that are driving him anymore. And maybe, just perhaps, if we give Elijah the benefit of the doubt right at this moment, instead of seeing this only in terms of the world against Elijah, like he had up to this point, he might just, maybe, be beginning to realize that he doesn't always get it right all the time either. That maybe there's a place for humility in his ministry. And here we see God gently taking this once impressive tree lying there on the ground with its roots all up in the air and gently beginning to set it upright once again. It's a possibility for establishing a healthy root system once more. Recently, Kathy McMillan came upon a passage from, I think it's from one of Tim Keller's books, The Reason for God, that she shared with us, which I, I think captures very well what can happen when we lose focus in the way that Elijah did and allow our identity and our lives to become driven by things around us rather than arising out of what God is doing within us. He begins by pointing out that the problem isn't so much that we do bad things, but that we make otherwise good things into ultimate things. And I want to share with you just a couple of excerpts from what he writes. If you center your life and identity on your spouse, you can become emotionally dependent or controlling. The other person's problems will overwhelm you. If you center your life and identity on your family and children, you may try to live your life through them until they resent you or have no life of their own. If you center your life and your identity on your work, you may become a driven, perhaps even a shallow person. At worst, you may lose family and friends. And if your career goes poorly, develop deep depression. If you center your life and identity on money and possessions, you'll be eaten up by worry or perhaps be willing to do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle, which will eventually blow up your life. If you center your life, on identity, life and identity on pleasure, gratification, or comfort, you will find yourselves getting addicted to something. You will become chained to the escape strategies by which you avoid the hardness of life. If you center your life and identity on relationships and approval, you will be constantly overly hurt by criticism 
and thus will always be losing friends. You will fear confronting others and therefore will be of little use as a friend. If you center your life and identity on a noble cause, you will divide the world into good and bad and demonize your opponents. Ironically, you will be controlled by your enemies, for without them, your life will have no purpose. If you center your life and your identity on religion and morality or the forms of them, you may become proud, self-righteous, even cruel. And if you don't live up to your own expectations, your guilt will be utterly devastating. Talk about trees lying on their sides with their roots up in the air. I think he nails it pretty well. Well, you know, as we read on in Elijah's story and we see where things go on from here, there are at least three things that I think we notice and that we can see happening. First, now that Elijah has stopped running and is beginning to listen once again, God sends him right back the way he came. He sends Elijah home. But he goes back differently now. He's no longer running from what he sees on the outside. And he's going back much more aware of what's going on on the inside. Second, Elijah returns not so much as the star prophet in Israel, as he may have imagined himself to be before, the only one left who can get things right. But he goes back as one whose role has now changed to someone who can recognize and mentor and assist the ministry of other prophets. And third, God reminds him that however it might feel at times, he is not alone. There are still 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal, which reminds him, as we've been noticing all through this series, that whatever our issues may be, we are a part of a community, a family, and we don't get to run from that either. When God sends him back, he sends him back to his church family. You know, maybe there's something to be said about trees growing alongside of each other. Not only because they might help absorb some of the force of the elements when the elements become unfriendly, but maybe because they have a role to play in holding each other up, even those times when the root system gets a little shaky. Or during those times when some of us might find ourselves lying on our sides with our roots all up in the air, exposed in ways that we hoped they never would be. Maybe they get to be part of the process whereby God is able to set us upright again and help us get our roots back into the soil where they belong. Elijah's experience reminds us that great foliage is no substitute for deep roots because, to paraphrase Solomon, snow happens. And you know, the good news is that if it does, and we happen to find ourselves laying on our sides with our roots in the air, or running from our lives, or for our lives, whichever the case may be, God still pursues us. He knows it takes a while in some cases. And if we're willing to listen, we discover that he is still speaking, still willing to set us upright again. But maybe even more important than that is that if we're willing to listen now and take our cues from him and not from the stuff that's whirling around us, 
if now we take the time to sink our roots deep into the soil, we may discover that when snow does happen, even if it means that we do lose some branches along the way, that we get through those times much better. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful this morning for the evidence of new life that you surround us with. Children to hold up in dedication to you this morning. New buds and blossoms appearing on branches. And the hope that we all have that whatever swirls in and around our lives, that you still continue to speak to us, you still continue to pursue us, you still continue to reveal to us who you really are, if we're willing to listen. We pray, Lord, that in our lives you would teach us to sink our roots deeply, to draw from the nourishment that's there, and to stand alongside those around us during the times when they're doing that well and when they're not. Thank you for the promise we have that you are the God who speaks and who brings new life into our lives and our world. We pray in Jesus' name.